Well, good morning, everybody. I've got good news for us today. Christ is returning. Amen. Uh, and we could be done again, because that's the main point of this. Um, so I recognize you were just given charts and graphs and lesson six, lots of good material. Pause on all that. Our, in our notes, we're still back in section four. Okay? So flip back with me to section four, if you would, and we're going to try to make some headway today. Um, we'll see. I'd love to finish four and get through five. So we'll see if we can get there. That doesn't mean for you to not ask questions. I hope that you will ask questions. But uh, I'm giving you a moment right now to get to section four before I put the car in drive. All right, so section four, the second coming, and page three. If you weren't here, there are all the old notes are out in the resource center. Okay, so if you didn't, you weren't here on that day or other days, we've got all um, now six sections of notes. Well, maybe not today's. I'm not sure how Ivy does that. But the previous sections of notes are all out there, okay? So, so I'm in section four, page three. And we're going to talk about the characteristics of Christ's return. And when we talk about the characteristics, it's so that we basically understand what does it mean that Christ return, is, is returning? What should we expect to happen when he returns? All right? So the first thing, uh, again, on page 3 of section 4, is that he will return at the right time. It is the right time. And God gets to define the right time. It might not be your preferred time. In fact, I can tell you, not my preferred time. Would have already happened. Um, but it is at the right time. The Father's time in Mark 13, 32, it says that no one knows the day or the hour except the Father. And the Father's perspective on time is different than ours. You know, Peter tells us that a day is as of a thousand years, and a thousand years as of a day. And he tells us that, not in a vacuum, he tells us that in reference to the second coming. Don't assume the Lord is slow. He doesn't think about time the way you think about time. So he knows what he's doing. And he's going to, uh, the, the return of Christ will happen when God's purposes in time are fulfilled. So Ephesians chapter 1 says that in Christ, God has a plan for the fullness of time. That is a, that is a remarkable statement. Here we are. A plan for all time. Well, God's not going to cut that plan short. He's going to make sure that plan is fulfilled. And that's when Christ will return. Page 4. Page 4 of Section 4, if you are following along with me. All right, so what else can we say about the return of Christ? We can say that it will be sudden and that it will be unexpected. Matthew 24, 44, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, here should be, uh, Sam, you could borrow this if you want to. Um, here should be the result of our studying the end times is not that we're 
trying to figure out and maybe succeeding at figuring out when Christ is returning. The, the result of studying the end times is being convinced that we will not know the time of his returning so that we stay ready for the time of his return. No amount of study can change what God has decided to hide until it is time. So it will be sudden and unexpected. But when he returns, it will be obvious that he returns. All right? You don't have to worry. Well, may, what if I'm sleeping? Am I going to miss it? You know, what if I have my noise-canceling headphones on? Am I going to miss? Like I yell up the stairs like I did last night to one of my kids who was playing the drums with their noise-canceling headphones on, playing music into their ears, and no amount of yell uh, with the door shut, no amount of yelling up the stairs was going to get their attention. Uh, you don't have to worry that you're going to miss the return of Christ. Um, it's going to be loud and bright, and he will ensure that everyone knows. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Revelation 1.7, behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And then Matthew 24 talks about it being like, like the shining of lightning from the east to the west. So when he comes, we'll know it. You'll know it. Now, the best characteristic of his return is the next one, personal, which is to say he himself is returning. When Christ returns, he's not sending angels in his place or some kind of deputized authority in his place. When Christ returns, Christ is returning for his bride. That is phenomenal and wonderful news. Acts 1.11, when the disciples were standing around, gazing up at, as Christ ascended and was taken out of their sight, the angel comes down and says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, this one, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And 1 Thessalonians 4, just the first couple words, the Lord himself will descend. So it is a personal return, and going to page 5, that's the best part of all of this. That our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who loves us better than a brother, closer than family, will himself return. And so where there are other things that are confusing, other things that we don't understand, other things that, that we don't quite you know, aren't able to wrap our heads around, we can wrap our heads around this. This is the hope of the church. He himself is returning for you and me. Praise God. All right, so other aspects of his return. Uh, when he returns, it will not be like his first coming. Right? You could kind of think of the, the rough idea of the lamb that was slain and the lion of Judah. And he came the first time as the lamb and he is coming again as the lion. Now, he will still be the lamb, if you understand my, my meaning there. In other words, he still comes with mercy for his people. He still is our gentle and good shepherd. But he comes roaring against his enemies. He comes in glory and in triumph over all of those who stand 
against him and who have stood against and harmed his people. So I'm going to sort of go down to the, the bottom of that page five. There are some bullet points there that you can see. What, what kinds of things do we mean that this is his decisive return? Glorious, triumphant. Um, when he returns, he will complete the work of redemption. So what he began on the cross, what he paid for on the cross, gets finished. So the, the curse which has rested upon creation will be removed. God's enemies will be subdued. The sin in our hearts will be eliminated. Um, all that he came to do, he will complete at his return. So complete the work of redemption, put an end to all of God's enemies. That's when there will be the resurrection of the dead. So those, those that are uh, already fallen asleep, as Thessalonians would say it. And I'll use the word rapture here, the rapture of those believers who are still alive. That's when believers who are alive get caught up together, meet the Lord in the air, and descend with him to, to rule and reign upon the earth. All right? So that all happens at the second coming. Um, it will be both great and terrible. It will be great. Great in the sense of, of good for believers. Great in the sense of awesome. There's never been anything awesome compared to this. Nothing else is awesome once this. This is awesome. The return of Christ with the, with the voice of command. That is great, and it is terrible for the enemies of God. This, this, is, this is when time runs out for the enemies of God, and they realize that it does. And this is when he restores all things, as Acts chapter 3 predicts. Glory to God. All right. So I'm going to go to section 5 of our notes, and I'll pause for questions as to the nature of Christ's return and what we can expect in that moment. <clears throat> Paul. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Paul's question is the, that one of these says, judge all men and usher them into their final state. Is that the great throne judgment? Is that? Yes, that is. That is the great and final judgment. And, you know, Christ predicts that, right, when he's going to stand and, and separate the sheep from the goats and, and say, depart from me, I never knew you, or welcome all of you uh, into the kingdom prepared for you. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the final judgment, and it is not technically God. You'll know what I mean. It's not God the Father that sits on the throne and judges. It is the God-man Jesus who will judge the world. Um, so he will, he will stand and, and execute the final judgment. And we're going to have a whole session on the final judgment once we get there in a few weeks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So, so the question is, is Palm Sunday a kind of prophetic enactment of the second coming? Had you ever thought of that? I hadn't. I love it. I mean, yes, <laughs> yes. 
Yes. Amen. Amen. Yes. 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 Um, it 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 has to be. I mean, I it was clearly speaking. The second the the uh, Palm Sunday was clearly speaking to the to the uh, kingship of Christ, which then the city decided to deny and to kill him. Uh, but he didn't stop being king. Um, and so, absolutely, he will. Uh, there will be a second Palm Sunday. <laughs> Amen. He won't be on a donkey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's not. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's a great question. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the question is: All this time we tell people they're going to go to heaven, but they're not really going to heaven. They're going to earth, and that sounds like a tough sell. Um. So, uh, that's that's fantastic. I I. I think it is rather surprising, actually, to say that we're not going to spend eternity in heaven. What? Are we a Christian church? What? I'm, yeah, I'm so confused. So, and we're going to, if that sounds like blasphemy to you, just hang with us through the book of Revelation. Because the end of the book is that heaven comes down to earth. And the dwelling place of God is with man. So, God created us to live in a physical world, obviously. We have physical bodies. He's given us senses that perceive physical things but don't perceive spiritual things. And so, so we, we are well fit for a physical existence, and that's not going to change. So, our resurrected bodies are still going to be well fit to a physical existence. And so, rather than God calling us up to live with him for all eternity, even better, God himself will come down and dwell with us for all eternity, and that is heaven. To dwell with God forever is heaven. It might not be the heaven that we think of as a kind of location, but it is the most uh, uh, kind of paradise reality to dwell with God forever. Um, so his plan for all time, remember, it just started in the garden, Right? He made us to live on earth in uninterrupted fellowship, and he came down and dwelt with his people. And that's what we're looking forward to on the last day as well. Um, Now, in the meantime, before Christ returns, you and I pass away before Christ returns, we will go to heaven as those who don't have a body for a while. And we await as conscious souls in the presence of God the return of Christ. And we'll be very happy and yet still anticipating that day when we get resurrected and we're dwelling on earth uh, with the Lord. The gold and the pearly gates. Um, Streets of gold, yes. Uh, Pearly gates, yes. Uh, But those describe the gates of the city of the New Jerusalem upon the earth. And whether they describe gates of pearls or not, it's either actual gates of pearls or better than that, I'll say. In other words, if it's symbolic language, 
the symbol is never less than the reality, right? So like, so maybe they are, and that would be that would be amazing, beautiful gates of pearl, um, or perhaps it speaks of a a reality that transcends our ability right now to really wrap our minds around. Seems rather likely. I can't wrap my mind around all that much. So, um, so you don't have to take heaven away from anybody. We're going to spend eternity in what every human could understand as heaven. We want to fill that in a little bit with it's, an, it's a physical place. You will have your physical bodies. We're not floating on clouds with harps. That's the thing that we want to kind of say, eh, that's not what heaven is. Heaven is, is living with God as humans were intended. Incredible. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so they, they covered heaven in grief share yesterday. Um, by the way, if you don't think on Saturday to pray for grief share, would you? Wonderful group of folks that are in there. It is the um, it is emotionally the hottest room in Spotsylvania. It, it's not easy to walk in that room. Everybody there has just lost someone. It's weighty and difficult, and Joanne is there every Saturday. And they talked about heaven <clears throat> in a slightly different tone than we do, perhaps. Uh, there's a an imminent, please explain to me more about this. <laughs> but regardless, um, the teaching yesterday, which is right, said the streets of gold and the, the pearly gates is just like with all symbols. They're not to tell us what things look like. They're to tell us what things are like. So it's it's a description of a deep reality. Um, which is why I can say either it will be actual pearly gates or something that so transcends that and is just better than that that we can't quite understand. Christine, would you be able to shut that door for us? Thank you. Johnny. And you have you have accurately predicted, not the timing of his return, but the timing of what I'm about to say next, uh, which is the whole next lesson. We're going to look at those uh, signs in the New Testament related to the timing of his return, so we can try to understand: is he should we expect him any minute, or are there some things that haven't been fulfilled? I think this is a challenging question. So, Connie. Yeah. 
Right, right. So the question is, where in Scripture does it say that we will be looking forward to the second coming of Christ? If we're already in heaven, um, then we're already in heaven. And, and that's going to, so, so the answer is going to test my memory quite a bit. Uh, our first week of notes, I'll refer you to the first week of notes, where we talked about that time in heaven called the intermediate state. All right, so that was the first thing we talked about. And I, I can generally point to when Paul talks about a couple things. He says, first, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that's how we know we will be with the Lord and without a body. Right? But then elsewhere, he talks about our body like a tent. Do you remember this? And that the time is coming when we take that tent off and we're with the Lord. But not that we want to remain outside of that tent forever. But we're looking forward to being in a new tent, as it were. So, will we be sad in the presence of Christ? Everybody says, no, we will not be sad in the presence of Christ. All right? Will we be, is there fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord? Yes. There's fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord. Did he create us to have bodies? Yes, he did. And so while there will be a fullness of joy, there will be an anticipation of being reclothed, of not being tentless, or I believe Paul also says naked, that is, without the body that we're designed to have. So we'll anticipate that, that resurrection when we could, nothing get nothing gets worse at that time. We stay in the presence of God forever. Things get better because we are back as God intended us to be, which is uh, body-soul units. It's how he designed us. And that's what Christ purchased, which is why Christ himself was resurrected. It's to show us that's what God's going to do for us, too. He's the first fruits of that. Um, and if that's a gift from God, it would make sense that we would anticipate and be excited for and be grateful for that gift of God. Correct. Oh, section two. Okay, Jessica said it's section two of week one. So, yes. Yes. Correct. So Paul says glorified body. That's right. <laughs> like, who wants to come back to these? <laughs> That's not it, friends. That's not it. Um, so maybe there's like a few of you, and you're all under 20. You're like, this isn't so bad. Um, so the rest of us are a little more aware of the curse of the fall and the reality of disease and decay and inability and loss. And that, and I got some amens up here. <laughs> and that will all be overturned by Christ, and so we will be in perfected bodies as he had. And we're going to talk more about the resurrection. If you've got questions about that, that's, that's its own topic, too. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that. Yes? Mm. So the Catherine's question is, in our... As we're in heaven with the Lord, that intermediate state, are we going to be anticipating the redemption of the earth 
as well as the reception of our bodies? I would, I would have to say yes, both because it's like where we came from. Like we have, a, we have an interest in the earth. But I think even more so, we have an interest in the glory of the Savior. And, and he will be greatly glorified when, because of his own death, he abolishes death from the earth. And because he took on the curse, he removes the curse from the earth. Like, he will receive great, great glory, and we will long for that. So, yeah. Very good. All right. Section five. The timing of Christ's return. <laughs> so let's define the question, why in the world would I have a whole section on the timing of Christ's return? I, let me state up front. The point here is not to define the time of Christ's return, though that might seem like it is. No. The scripture is clear. We cannot know the day or the hour. Here's the question. Should we expect his return at any moment? Or are there signs yet to be fulfilled? That's the question. Johnny put the ball on the tee for us and said, hey, in the New Testament, it says that Christ won't return until the gospel goes to all the earth. So can we expect Christ to return right now or not? Okay, so I'm going to give an overview of those different signs. I don't have time to go into each of those signs, all right? So you might, you might really know about one of them. Like Johnny, um, bless the Chapmans, love evangelism, love missions, eager to see the gospel go forward, um, have thought a lot about that particular sign. I probably won't be able to fully answer Johnny's questions about that sign, and I might not be able to answer your questions about the salvation of the Jews or some other sign that you are aware of. I'm going to give an overview of the signs and hopefully draw some conclusions towards the end, okay? So when I talk about the signs, I'm talking about those indicators in the New Testament that something needs to happen before Christ comes back, all right? So still on page one of section five, um, there are lots of indicators in the Scripture that his return is imminent, that we should expect his return at any moment. And you can see lots of Bible verses there under indications of imminence. James 5.8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 Peter 4.7, the, the end of all things is at hand. Revelation 1.3, the time is near. Revelation 22.12, behold, I am coming soon. Revelation 22.20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen, come Lord Jesus. This is but a sampling of the New Testament emphasis on the imminence of the return of Christ. The rest are going to be indications that he may delay. And I'm going to take a lot more space talking about the indications of delay because it, it takes more space to do so. But the space difference doesn't mean that it has the greater emphasis in the New Testament. If anything, the great emphasis is on the Im imminence of the Lord's return. But let, let, us, let us think about some indications of delay. We get some general indications of delay from some parables. So the parable of the virgins who had their oil 
as they were waiting for the bridegroom's return, some ran out of oil. Why did they run out of oil? The bridegroom was delayed. Okay, so there's, there's a delay. There's another one of the parable of the um, stewards where he gives out gifts, goes on a long journey, and is delayed in his return. And so some, in his delay, stop serving him and go off and do other things, and others continue to serve him. And so there are indicators that the, the time between Christ's first coming and second it should be expected to be some amount of delay in there. Page two, signs of his return. All right, so here are some things that the scriptures talk about need to happen before his return. The first is gospel proclamation to the world, as Johnny mentioned. And here it is in Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Is that clear or what? That is clear. That is clear. When will the end come? After that happens. Now, here's my experience with this. Some, and particularly in the missions world, take this as, uh, well, first of all, all of us should take this as a reason to evangelize. All right? Amen. Let's be about it. Some take this, particularly in the missions world, and say, hey, you know, here are the 200 cultures that don't have a gospel witness right now, and until they do, Christ isn't returning. And about that, I would say, I think they're claiming too much there. It does say the whole world. I don't know that we can define what that means. I think God alone knows what he means by that. So should that motivate us towards evangelism? Yes, it should. Should that make us live as though we know Christ isn't coming back? No, it shouldn't. We do not know the day or the hour. I think of Paul. Well, Paul and Jesus both had similar comments. Paul, as he went throughout the known world, he, he said, hey, I've, I've taken the gospel everywhere. Really? You must mean something different by everywhere than I mean by everywhere. You know, His was a general state of, first of all, in the Roman Empire and the different regions in it. He didn't mean every town. He didn't mean to every person. He didn't even mean to every language as he said that. Right? So I think we need, I think it would be wise for us when we see this sign to say only the Lord knows when this one is fulfilled. Let us live evangelizing and expecting the Lord's return. Right, sign number two, the salvation of the fullness of Israel. Romans eleven twenty five. I should have included verse 26. I'll read it for you. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So this is one of those verses that gets great, great amount of debate over what does Paul mean when he says all Israel will be saved. Here's what I take him to mean, that the fullness of the elect, the fullness of those Jews who will be saved, will be saved. Some take this to be a, 
an end time event. Like, and then suddenly, there's a great turning to God amongst the Jews. I don't see that here. What I see is that throughout church history, Jews are being saved and added into the people of God. And when the fullness of them are added, then the end can come. Which is not too different than the first sign. So I, I interpret this very differently than a lot who really hold this up and say, nope, Jesus is not returning until we see a, a national Israel with a temple worshiping Jesus in great repentance. That is to build an awful lot off of those verses, and I think takes them away from what their intent was. All right, so then number three, tribulation. Uh, we went through the book of Daniel together. Um, Daniel 12, 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. This does sound end time to me. Um, because at that time, everyone delivered whose name is in the book. Like, that's the, that's, that's the book of life that Jesus is opening at the great judgment. This is an end time prophecy and certainly seems to anticipate a distinct time of tribulation preceding this time of redemption. In other words, a tribulation to precede the coming of Christ. So if you were here last week, and if you weren't, forgive me, we're going to get to it again next week, and you can catch up. If you remember, I drew out kind of a timeline, and there were a couple things on there. One of them was tribulation. And so tribulation, we should expect, happens throughout the history of the church. It was a wiggly line. Remember? The wiggly line went up and down, up and down, up and down throughout church history. So we should expect rise and fall of tribulation, different places at different times for the church. And it does seem as though there will be an increase of tribulation right at the end. Sign number four, apostasy. So apostasy is falling away from the faith. Apostasy, more narrowly defined, is the falling away of false professors from the faith rather than true believers from the faith. But it will certainly be a sifting of the visible church into those that are truly following Christ and those that are not. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about this time of falling away. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read. I'm going to read this. It's a longer section, so you might want to follow along with me. This section, we're going to need to think on it several times throughout here, so let's just hear the word of the Lord. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Do you know, and you know that what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So this really is sign four and five together. It's a time of apostasy and a time of antichrist. So the man of lawlessness is the antichrist. And this is, this is the end appearance. Remember the second wiggly line we had was the spirit of antichrist at work throughout the entire church age, but then culminating at the end in this man of lawlessness who would come and lead rebellion against the Lord. He's going to set himself up as God. And, and, and I ask you, who's going to be tempted to worship? Is it not those associated with the church who would be most tempted to follow one who appears as Christ? It, that's a scary reality. Like he's going to deceive the world. But I do think the deception is going to work certainly into the visible church. That is the church where, where we gather, where some are saved and some are not. Um, it, it's going to, the, the Antichrist will lead many into apostasy. All right. I've got two more signs, and then maybe we'll, we'll start to try to pull together what do these things mean. So sign number six is wars, earthquakes, famines, things like this. So, uh, picking one verse, I could have put a thousand in here from Revelation alone. Uh, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Um, so this has led many to expect what, we, what they call apocalypse things to happen, right? To expect literally the moon to turn to blood, except they don't actually expect that. They expect is literally the moon to look like blood. But even those who take it literally don't think the moon will become blood. I'm just trying to point out there's an inconsistency on that literal side. Um, and if the, if the stars fall to earth, uh, this is it's, the earth falls into stars. It doesn't work the other way around. Stars are really big. Um, the, 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 this is symbolic language, as we've often encountered through the book of Revelation. So this is earth shaking in the sense of change, not in the sense of earthquake. All right? So we should interpret these things symbolically rather than waiting for stars to fall. And, and the number of teachings I got a, as a young person that this referred to nuclear weapons, things like that, that could, could, could for a while blot out the sun and perhaps give it an orange hue or, or something like that. I, I think that is really stretching to try to in, interpret it physically when throughout the book of Revelation we have symbolic language being used. In other words, I don't think sign six is a sign at all. Uh, last one, sign seven, increasing wickedness. 2 Timothy 3, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, etc. 
2 Timothy 4 says, A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So this seems very much like Antichrist, which we should expect throughout church time, and expect an increase, kind of a definitive end to that. Very much like tribulation, which we should expect throughout the church age, and perhaps expect a, a peak at the end in the same way here. The, the love of people growing cold, there being wickedness within the church, that's a thing throughout the church age. And we may expect an increase at the end as well. All right. So interpreting the signs. You guys want me just to say what I think on all this. Let me, let me give some boundaries to how to think about this first. All right? There's some, here's places we shouldn't go. Here's places we definitely should go. And then I'll, I'll try to get more narrow from there. So, errors to avoid. I'm on page four if you're catching up. Errors to avoid. First error, using the signs to come up with an exact date for his return. That is an error to avoid because the scripture tells us don't do that. You won't know. Error number two would be to take all the signs and assume that they all are speaking of a future tense time to us right before the coming of Christ. This is a common way of thinking about them. And what I've tried, the way I've tried to even explain them is to say, for example, we should expect, expect tribulation throughout the church age. It's not just speaking of the time right before he returns. So, it does seem like there'll be an increase in tribulation right before he returns. Okay? So, there's a, seeing a kind of a both and. There's a, often a description of the church age in these signs. Error number three is to assume that the signs of his return are going to be spectacular and cataclysmic and supernatural and abnormal. Um, most of these things are not. The evangelization of the world, for example, is a very ordinary Christian thing to be about. And uh, tribulation being endured by the church is a very ordinary Christian thing to be about. Um, so, so I think we've done ourselves a disfavor by putting the book of Revelation into this kind of special future tense, oh wow, that all sounds amazing and spectacular, and I think the symbolism is often meant to point to uh, what the church is going through. Um, error number four, signs enable us to construct a schedule of future events. Um, so this is maybe perhaps a little different than um, just knowing the time of his return. But this, for example, would be, um, okay, here are the unreached people groups left in the world. Here's the rate at which they're being reached right now. And if we follow that rate, we can say Christ will not return until 2053. And so if that's 2053, then before that must be the tribulation. So we should expect the tribulation in about 2046. You can see how you could get going on these kinds of things, but it's conjecture well beyond. This is not our job. This is, not our, this is us trying to play at a different pay grade than God's called us to play at. 
All right, so those are errors. What are some truths, general truths about the signs? Here's one that, you, that, that I would miss that you would miss if, if it wasn't helpfully taught. Signs point to what God has done through Christ's first coming. We tend to think of the signs as only related to his second coming. But the signs are happening because of his first coming. Why is the world being evangelized? Because Christ came and died for sinners and brought together Jew and Gentile and said, go into all the world. The sign points to the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? Why is the church in tribulation and persecution? Because they're the church. And God's kingdom is already broken in in Christ's first coming, but hasn't been brought to fulfillment yet in his second coming. And so we're persecuted by the kingdom of this world. And so the signs point to a definitive work that Christ has already done. Right, that's truth one. Truth two, signs point to what God will do in the second coming. So it's both, right? We, we, should, we should see the signs as, as kind of proof that Christ came and as proof that he's returning. The signs point to a collision between kingdoms. I kind of just said that. Right? His kingdom has come into this world. He said, the kingdom is at hand. Kingdom's broken in, but it's not been fulfilled. He hasn't returned and defeated his enemies. And so, and so we live amongst those enemies. And those enemies persecute the church. And we live, we lived as those enemies before we were saved. And still within us, the sin which clings so closely is an enemy of the kingdom of God and would do great harm. And so we're, we're in this time where the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ are in conflict. And the, the signs point to that. Number four, the signs point to the world's need for repentance. Yes, they do. Uh, this, this, this is a, it's a sign to the world to, to repent before Christ returns. And number five, signs point to the church's need for vigilance, that we are waiting for Christ's return. Okay, so some conclusion thoughts then. Um, let's be careful as we think about the signs, not to assign them in our own thinking to exclusively being future tense. There are signs out in the future that I know for sure haven't been fulfilled. If you do that, you will not, there's no theological room to anticipate Christ's return right now. If, if we're going to definitively say something hasn't happened yet, then we don't have to be ready. And that would go against a lot of New Testament teaching that says, be ready. You don't know the day or the hour. So clearly the signs are not meant for us to let our guard down because we think we have it figured out. Even signs that we might say, well, this hasn't been fulfilled. I have a few, all right? I do anticipate an end times antichrist with an end times season of tribulation. I don't know that I'm going to pick up on that right away. Is that person alive? Has that tribulation begun in some corner of the world? Will that tribulation be a a period of time that I can discern 
such that I can say, oh, you know, we're a long ways out. In other words, I think even if you put things tentatively in the future, it could be quick. It could be quick. So, the purpose of the signs is actually to keep us watchful and vigilant. That's why the Lord gave us these things. So that we would, so that we would see the world evangelism happening and say, Amen, Lord, keep that going, and come, Lord Jesus. You said this would happen. You said the world would be evangelized, and it's happening. Good. You said there'd be tribulation, and it's happening. Good. You said there would be the spirit of Antichrist at work, and it is. Good. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. These normatively are descriptions of the church age. We can look at and say, this is exactly what he said. And he said to anticipate his return when we see these things. And we're seeing these things. So let's anticipate his return. And I'm going to stop because you've got to have questions. Jessica. Okay. You can get one. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, there, there is. So... Uh, the question is, is there anywhere else in Scripture that talks about earthquakes, famines, the moon turning to blood? Actually, if you did a, if you did a little, yeah, do a little word search on moon turning to blood, and you'll see it throughout the Old Testament prophets. And in fact, some of them are then interpreted in the New Testament as having been fulfilled when Christ came. Moon turns to blood is, is language to describe great change upon the earth it's um and I, there's no um scientific or biblical uh record of red moons when christ was on the earth physically red moons you know what i'm saying so i think we're in really good stead to say oh look the, the way that old testament prophecy fulfilled in the first coming of christ about the stars falling and the moon turning to blood those didn't happen physically those spoke to the um, world-changing nature of events. And Christ's death and resurrection were world-changing in every sense of the word. Um, we should probably expect it to continue to mean something like that moving into the future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the question is, you know, could you miss the tribulation? Um, on some level, I'd say that seems hard to imagine, to actually miss it. We, we, you're right, though. We can't miss the second coming. That's going to be clear to everyone. But it does seem to me that tribulation, um, as it is now, it, it, it comes in different corners of the world. And to be honest, we live out of our own skin and our own eyes. 
And even now in the age of the Internet, when we supposedly be, can be connected to everything, we can't be connected to everything. And don't imagine, it's, it's horrible to think all the news space that gets taken up on local U.S. Poli political bickering and, and how little we hear of the Christians being murdered in North Korea and in China. Like, tribu tribulation is as bad for them as it will get. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, just one of these, there are more Christians in China than there are Americans in America. A lot of Christians over there. That's a lot of tribulation going on. So could it expand from there before we're really cognizant? Oh my gosh, this seems worse than ones before. I sure think that's possible or even likely. Probably all I can say about it, but Jim. Yeah, I'm not convinced on that, to be honest. So Jim's comment is we would definitely know because a third of the earth will die. We're going to get to some of those texts in Revelation here, and maybe I'll save it for there. But um, I'm not convinced that a third means a third um, as much as a large portion. You know, this is, again, I, and I don't know that even Jim would be suggesting that it means a literal precise one-third, like what's one-third of this many billion people, you know. But yes, so so yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good thought, and I maybe weighs a little bit of the way we're trying to speak here about tribulation, where it seems like we might miss the beginning, and we might miss the middle. It's hard to imagine we're going to miss the end, as in not recognize what's going on. But yeah, Sam. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. Great. Great. Yeah. Um, no way I'm going to get through this in the negative two minutes I have left. Um, <laughs> uh, so the question is basically, hey, I, I kind of see the... the you know, interpreting things symbolically. But when do I do what? That boiled down a whole lot of thoughts there. Um, 
that's a hard question. Uh, and, and should I just come and ask Ken? And I said no. But I didn't say no because Sam bugs me. Um, <laughs> Sam doesn't bug me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not about that. Um, I say no because my heart and goal for us is that we learn to read our Bible and that we learn to interpret, um, not that we all learn to come to one person to do that. I do think a pastor has a role. I do think teachers in the church have a role. Please come to me with questions. I'm not saying that either. But I want to help equip you to read your Bible. Um, so a couple things there. First of all, apocalypse is a subset of prophecy. So when the prophetic word came that out of Bethlehem will come, and then Christ was born in Bethlehem, that's expected. That was prophetic. That wasn't apocalyptic, which speaks in symbolic language. All right? So defining the boundaries of these things is still a challenge. But I'm just saying, not all prophecy is apocalypse. Apocalypse is a genre which means to speak in symbols. And that's why we did the whole book of Daniel together, so that we could just see it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. So that, and, and history confirms it as symbolic, and then we get to Revelation together and we can continue in that symbolic language into territory that is harder because history hasn't happened yet, you know? So don't go reading every prophecy in the Bible, say in the book of Isaiah, as though it was merely symbolic. That is, that is to make the opposite error. What I am speaking towards most often is, I think, an error we tend to make, which is to say, well, literal is easier. I'm just going to do that. If you do that, you will get apocalypse wrong all the time. So let's not do that. But you should read Genesis literally. You should read Isaiah literally. You should read the Psalms literally, if literally is the right word. But just what does it say? Well, that's what it means, you know. Um, so the, the symbolism should be reserved for apocalypse. Beyond that, I'm going to have to wait because I'm at negative five. So, um, so Lord, midst of our thoughts here, thank you that you are returning. Thank you that you gave us signs that speak of the wondrous things you did in your first coming. We can anticipate your second coming. You have said you are coming soon. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.